This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Coming up on today's program, more on the flooding in the Midwest. We're going to talk with the Nebraska Cattlemen's about the, the situation there with livestock in the state of Nebraska and recovery and assistance efforts underway. Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition will join us to take a look at how the flooding uh, uh, in the Midwest is impacting the movement of grain and other transportation issues now and longer term. And yesterday we heard how the ethanol industry feels about the EPA continuing to grant these waivers to the RFS. Today we'll hear from the National Biodiesel Board. They've probably been hurt even more than the ethanol industry by these waivers. We'll talk with the Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. But first we'll start things off with a look at the news. Spencer Chase is with us from AgriPulse Communications. Spencer, thanks for being with us. Uh, AgriPulse AgriPulse hosted uh, your annual big event yesterday in conjunction with Ag Day and Ag Week. Um, You had quite a lineup of speakers yesterday. We sure did, and I really appreciate you having us, uh, giving us the grace to have that event yesterday and to have us on uh, here today to talk about it, Mike. It was it was quite the event. Had a, as you mentioned, a lot of speakers offering really kind of a diverse array of perspectives. Uh, one of the one of the panels that we had was a group of young and beginning farmers that really had uh, kind of the, the whole gamut of agriculture represented. We had one uh, farmer who was working on his family's uh, operation as the eighth generation and another farmer who decided that uh, when he grew up he wanted to be a farmer. And so he was a first-generation operator. And just the, the difference in perspectives that they had was very interesting, but also the commonality was, uh, was something we could learn from as well. Well, your panel, you, you, d- you discussed a lot of important topics affecting agriculture today and looking to the future. Uh, let's talk about trade. You had a lot of information on trade. What was the takeaway there? Well, one of the interesting things that came out of uh, came out of yesterday's discussions on trade was that uh, Under Secretary Ted McKinney was there and uh, gave kind of the closing address at the summit. And one of the things that he said was, you know, folks uh, probably going to need to go past March 30th to get a final deal with China. Uh, said they're working on details, still uh, still hammering out some final things on that regard, but just not quite to a point where they can announce any kind of finalization and have presidential signatures there by the end of the month. But it was also underscored throughout the day that exports remain a, a critical part of the producer's bottom line, not only today, but looking at the, the numbers of what we're anticipating by, by 2040, as you mentioned, it was a very uh, futuristic-looking uh, summit. Uh, you know, trade is going to continue to be a, a critical part for American agriculture because not only is it going to be a, an issue where, you know, the, the domestic consumer just cannot consume everything that uh, America is producing, also could be looking at some things like specialization within agricultural production in the next couple of decades and certain countries really excelling at producing certain commodities and then moving them out into the global marketplace. Anything new on USMCA? Well, uh, not not really much new discussed on USMCA yesterday, just uh, an underscoring of the importance of it. Uh, still looking at finalizing some of those uh, some of those details within the, within the countries now. I mean, they they've kind of sat down at the negotiating table and it's up to uh, up to some internal deliberations. Uh, we do know that uh, US Trade Chief uh, Bob Lighthizer was on Capitol Hill last week to talk to some House Democrats and try and ease some of their concerns, but 
coming out of that meeting, a lot of the House Democrats weren't sure if they had the votes to to block this deal on the House floor should it get there or not, and uh, also not really uh, not really sure if their concerns can be addressed through things like. Uh, through things like side letters or if they're going to be able to uh, handle things kind of internally. And so, you know, that agreement is uh, as important as it is to agriculture. It is very far from the finish line. And what about Japan? Uh, You know, again, the importance of it underscored a lot of different uh, areas. Uh, You know, uh, Undersecretary McKinney said that was something that they'll they'll be working on. You know, they cannot get a deal done there quickly enough, he said. And so obviously a lot of producers would feel the same way. We're talking with Spencer Chase with AgriPulse Communications. They hosted a big event in Washington, D.C., a number of uh, speakers addressing several topics uh, impacting agriculture now and into the future. And I know one of the topics, Spencer, that was addressed as well, uh, the new technology bringing new products to the market, uh, whether it's uh, cell proteins or the uh, the imitation dairy products, not only the uh, those products themselves, but the labeling of them and the oversight of them. Uh, interesting discussion. Right, and, and something that was important to note was that nobody at these, nobody at our summit yesterday, and really this isn't something I, I've heard in any other forum, is that uh, you know every, everyone sees that these products will exist and that they're going to need to coexist. So mostly now agriculture is looking to find a way to kind of you know peacefully live in harmony with some of these products. You know, do they need to you know rework some of the regulatory framework that's going to be happening for things like cell cultured meat? Do they need to you know sit down and talk things out with the plant-based folks either either in the boardroom or the courtroom to decide how those products need to be labeled in the either in the dairy aisle or in the meat uh, meat grocer or should they even be in the dairy aisle or in the meat grocer uh, still a lot of things yet to debate and that's something that's going to be huge here in these next 20 years as uh, as these as these uh, traditional protein sector companies kind of come to grips with the fact that they're going to have a wide array of new competitors because i mean keep in mind the, the, the culture technology and the, uh, the plant-based beverages, that's what we're seeing now. What are we going to see in the next 20 years? I mean, what, what innovation is out there that none of us could even begin to predict right now? And how will all of these companies that are representing America's producers right now, how will they adapt? That's going to be a big discussion point here as the American agriculture moves forward. And you had some outlook information as far as the ag economy is concerned. Yep, uh, we had got an update from uh, the chief economist Rob Johansson, and he, you know, kind of stuck to a lot of the the similar points that he saw with uh, with the Ag Outlook Forum, but also uh, saw, you know, he he and also an Aimpoint Research presenter uh, Brett Scotto also kind of pointed out this uh, this continuing uh, continuing look at specialization. He kind of broke down some of about about five farmers or farmer types that he sees existing here within these next twenty to forty years, and uh, it, it was some. Some information that raised some eyebrows within the within the room because one of the things that he said was essentially the the middle producer is going to be gone. You know, it's either going to be the extremely big, the extremely uh, vertically integrated producer, or it's the smaller boutique operation that can you know tell that personal story of we we had a, a panelist yesterday mention that they have a dairy cow on their farm named Iris, and every time a visitor comes out, whether it's a you know a culinary expert or a, you know an agritourist, they all meet Iris. And that's you know that's her specialty, not necessarily the milk production anymore. So farms like that, and farms like the you know the giants, you know multi-thousand cow dairies, will stick around. But some of the smaller ones, or some of the more middling ones, are going to struggle to struggle to adapt and struggle to stay competitive in the industry as as, as uh, the years advance. All right, Spencer, thanks for being with us. Uh, sounded like it was a great event yesterday. Thanks for sharing some of the highlights with us. 
Appreciate you having me, Mike. Take care. Spencer Chase with AgriPulse Communications. All right, coming up next on our program, a look at the situation in Nebraska. So hard hit by the floods and uh, so much uh, devastation there. The recovery efforts are underway, assistance efforts underway as well. We're going to talk with the Nebraska Cattlemen's about uh, the assessment of the damage, what they know right now. And we're hearing, you know, it's multi-millions for both crops and livestock. We'll be talking about that. Then later we'll talk about the transportation challenges from the flooding. And then we'll also be talking about uh, the biodiesel industry and the impact of these small refinery waivers to the RFS. Stay with us here on AOA. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we continue to try to get an assessment of the situation in Nebraska, one of the states hard hit by the flooding. It's going to be a, a quite a struggle for some time uh, for that state and for folks to recover. Um, when we take a look at the, the numbers, uh, early estimates are in the millions, and uh, th- those assessments are still going on. Joining us now with some of that information is Pete McClymont. He's with he's executive vice president of Nebraska Cattlemen's. Pete, thank you for joining us. Uh, what are the early assessment numbers that you have at this point? Yes, yeah, so thanks for having us on, number one. the uh, We had a meeting on Sunday with our state emergency response center, which included FEMA and uh, Nebraska folks on that, too. So the FEMA folks wanted us to quantify as best possible. So we in agriculture sat down with our director of ag, Steve Wellman, and the best guesstimates that we can come up with right now, we tried not to overstate but be as thoughtful, and we came up with a billion dollars. Another number that's important to recognize in that is that because of county road closings, bridges washing out, we felt comfortable assessing that added transportation costs until we get back to normal could be, if not exceed, a million dollars a day. Wow. And, and those numbers are going to keep going up for a while, right? I mean, you, there's you still got so much land underwater and damage that you have not even been able to assess yet. Exactly, and so different from a hurricane or a tornado, obviously when those things are over, you have uh, government entities in there, the insurance companies, and so that allows for instantaneous assessment of damage loss. And so the FEMA folks wanting to help us recognize that we can't give them hard numbers or, or good numbers until this is over, and that could be that could be four, four weeks from now. And so from that standpoint, that's another challenge, but... Governor Ricketts has been very helpful. It's my understanding that the vice president is going to be here in Nebraska today. Uh, uh, Sonny Perdue was on the phone with uh, Director Wellman and the governor yesterday offering up their support. So uh, those are good things. 
What have you heard from cattlemen around the state as far as their losses and their situations? So being a big state, it's been an unusual storm in the sense uh, all the tough weather conditions that came out of eastern Colorado and into Nebraska. So it's kind of a two-fold storm disaster, if you will. So there's parts out in the Panhandle and the Sand Hills where it's really negatively impacted producers. Some people got lucky and didn't have damages that maybe their neighbor did just by the amount of moisture coupled with the high winds. So those people are going to experience anywhere from 20 to 50% added uh, feed costs to get through it. Obviously, you're going to lose some calves. Uh, then basically from the central part of the state east, from Grand Island east, is where you're seeing the, the rain coupled with the snow, the high wind, more rain that, um, you know, lots of reports of cows and calves being next to a waterway that got washed away in central Nebraska, north of Grand Island. We heard of an instance where 32 pair were being moved to higher ground and all of them got washed away. The other thing on the feed yard side of things, just the accessibility to get to work, and this would be a similar occurrence for, say, a packing house. You know, just having the ability to get to work has been difficult. Uh, my president, Mike Drennan, uh, his son runs their yard north of Grand Island, and it took him three hours on Thursday just to get to work to find a road that was passable. So we're having bridges wash out, and so it's uh, it's of biblical proportions for what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Pete McClymont. He's the executive vice president of Nebraska Cattlemen's. Pete, uh, I, I, I'm sure a lot of cattlemen were trying to move cattle. As you mentioned, you gave us one example there were only so many places they could go and uh, not enough time in many cases to get them there. Yeah, and I think the one thing that was uh, helpful about this, I mean, it was coming, people knew it, and so uh, there's 14 of us on staff with Nebraska cattlemen that work for our members, and so we had lots of members report in, or we knew firsthand that they were doing the precautionary thing to get in a better spot, but... You know, just a tough winter. We've had lots of rain, snow. Two weeks ago, cow-calf guys were literally having to be right there when the mama cow was um, giving birth. And if you didn't get that calf up and dry it off, it was just bitterly cold. Then all the snow we had basically washed away with the rain last week. So then you add in the frozen ground, it was, you know, just all the wrong combinations coming together at one point to create this. So what are the uh, biggest needs right now? And tell us about some of the recovery and assistance efforts that are underway. So we've had great interaction, obviously, as I mentioned, Secretary Purdue and USDA, and we're proud Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh from Nebraska is there. So those conversations have been ongoing. Our FSA agency in Nebraska has been very helpful. Um, and as, as we've seen around the country, all the ag groups band together and uh, help one another. So at this time, uh, Farm, Nebraska Farm Bureau has some good resources on their webpage. So does the state uh, uh, Department of Ag. We yesterday established a 501c3 to receive money to help those in need. So we've got that ongoing. And I think another thing that is really important in all this is I talked to a member this morning who's a veterinarian and a feedlot operator. He's got some cows as well. 
but he said that he is starting to see the human toll on what people are dealing with. So the University of Nebraska Extension put out some really good information yesterday that is helpful. So there's nothing wrong with asking for help. And so UNL Extension has some good resources there to help people. Yeah, the stress uh, has to be uh, unbelievably high and the concerns about, you know, what folks are going to do moving forward. Uh, for those that want to help, want to make a donation, want to help in some way, how do they go about it? Please go to the Nebraska Cattlemen website. And this this uh, 501c3 that we set up, it's for anybody. It's for any cattle producer out there. So cattle producers can apply the guidelines will be straightforward. This is not about membership. This is about helping people. So if people want to make a cash contribution, they can go to the Nebraska Cattlemen website. Pete, what is the situation that you're hearing now? Are the waters receding? Uh, we see pictures on social media of, you know, when the water goes down, the, the damaged roads and bridges and things like that. What is the assessment of the conditions on the land right now? So in some places you're starting to see uh, the waters receding, which is good. I'm in Kearney today for a meeting and uh, drove out first thing in the morning uh, to Kearney, and it rained the whole way out. I talked to a friend who came from North Platte from the west. He was in rain the whole way, so that's only going to compound things. Granted, that will go down to the lower parts of the waterway system into Kansas, uh, where much of the damage is north of the Platte and in northeastern Nebraska, and so that's where the stress is. It's my understanding that the only bridge in Nebraska that crosses into Missouri and Iowa that's open at this time is I-80 going through the middle of Omaha into Iowa. So that's a that's a burden that's, you know, a big thing. So, you know, and not to try to, you know, look at what the future could hold, but it's our understanding where most of the snowpack uh, in Wyoming goes into the North Platte River. They're at least 140% of normal. So that added pressure that's going to have to be given consideration on dams releasing water is uh, part of the thought process, just not now, but in May and June when those those waters will be coming down the Platte River. So, you know, as I, I told people, if... Uh, if the good Lord gives you what you can handle, clearly we're pretty tough here. Hmm. Yeah, this is going to be a long-term recovery effort, isn't it? Yes, sir. And so people are up to it. Um, just I, my, for instance, our Cumming County members, which is in northeast Nebraska, it's the largest cattle and feed county in the state. They had a approach washout on Highway 275, which is a very high travel road between Norfolk and Omaha. And my guys have called and said, whatever it takes, they're willing to help. So that goes to the spirit of agriculture. Sure does. My, uh, Pete, thank you very much. We will stay in touch with you and, again, encourage people, if they can, to, to, to help any way they can and, and check out your website. Thank you so much, Pete. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Pete McClimate, Executive Vice President, Nebraska Cattlemen's. More on the flooding situation in the Midwest. We'll talk with Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition. That's coming up next here on Adams on Agriculture. 
You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacor Zemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected wheat acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio, portfolio you're, you're covered, covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we just heard from Pete McClymate, Executive Vice President of Nebraska Cattlemen's, uh, with an assessment of that situation in Nebraska, uh, which is very serious and will be for some time. That recovery will take quite a while. And he mentioned as part of that uh, just the challenges uh, the people face uh, trying to get anywhere in the state with roads and bridges washed out that's uh, the situation in other states as well and here to talk about the transportation part of all this is mike steenhook executive director of the soy transportation coalition mike thanks for joining us uh, when we look at the how widespread this situation is from all the flooding uh it's really having an impact on uh, on the movement of of uh, grain as well as people right just anyone being able to get around in some of these places a lot of folks are just cut off yeah and it, it really is having an impact on all of the modes of transportation in a real wide swath of the midwest and plain states and that's you know quite unique it, it really has an impact on rural roads and bridges on our freight rail system on our inland waterways on our ports so it, it's it's a real challenge, and, and I wish I could say that this is going to be just days in duration. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to be weeks in duration because you consider how much snowfall has yet to melt in the, the area that feeds into the Missouri River, the area that feeds into the Mississippi River, and a host of other rivers. So this is something that's going to be with us, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, as we just heard from Nebraska, it's raining there. I mean, we're we're still getting into the spring rainy season for a lot of places. Then you've got a lot of snow up north still to melt. So this is going to, uh, you know, take a while from that standpoint, as well as uh, the rebuild of a lot of the uh, infrastructure, which we know takes time. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, we, we're accustomed to flooding conditions in the spring. So this is not our first rodeo in, in you know, the Midwest and in the Plain States. What's particularly unique this year is we a we had saturated ground from you know late 2018 as we all knew uh, we had number two significant volumes of snowfall in places historic levels of snowfall um, number three we had severe and persistent you know sub freezing conditions you know periodically in the Midwest we'll have cold weather, snowfall, and then you'll have a 40-degree day or two, and then you have some melting, and then it, so it periodically will melt 
and kind of get expelled from the system periodically throughout the year, throughout the winter, and that really didn't occur significantly this year. And then the fact that so much of this was late, so we had this snowfall, cold temperatures even late, and all of a sudden you've got melting in certain areas and then a couple inches of rain, and this rain will kind of you know hit the ground and it'll just basically run off like a, like a, a tabletop, not get absorbed at all in the ground, and so now you have this situation that we're experiencing right now. You know, we, as you say, you know, we're accustomed to dealing with flood conditions in spring, and we've seen, uh, you know, barge traffic slowed or halted because of that many times in the past. But now we have a unique situation, not only uh, the problems with the barge traffic, but even getting anything to where you could load a barge. I mean, the, with roads out and bridges out, uh, this is so widespread uh, to the transportation system. Yeah, and, and again, county engineers, local governments, they're accustomed to having to, you know, repair, uh, you know, gravel roads throughout the spring, you know, being attentive to and if there's any kind of challenges with their rural bridges. But this is much more widespread and much more seismic. Um, you know, I know of no gravel road, no rural bridge, no rail track ballast that has a happy coexistence with flooding conditions. And you're going to you're seeing this kind of washout of all of these, you know, kind of these you know modes of transportation with with rural bridges when you've got increased water flow, increased turbulence that puts ex- additional stress on the foundations of that bridge. So, and these are these are local governments that don't have just an abundance of funds available. So they're very much taxed already. They'll continue to be taxed. So, yeah, it's, it's not just, to your point, it's not just barge transportation, it's not just ocean vessel transportation at our ports, but it's just that system that's able to make those deliveries occur in the first place. Yeah, as you said, very unusual to have the entirety of the transportation system so impacted as we're seeing right now. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, let's talk about what's happening on the rivers. Uh, We often think about uh, the traffic downstream, but uh, especially in the spring, there's a lot of traffic upstream, very important to agriculture. Uh, What's the uh, situation on the rivers right now? Yeah, you're having certain locks and dams that that have been closed. Uh, you have, due to the high water and greater turbulence on the river, you're having the length of these barge flotillas. They, they can often be 1,200 feet in, in length, or if you're even further down in the lower part of the Mississippi River, they can be much longer than that. They're having to shorten those, that, the length of those tows or flotillas, and that makes, obviously, the system less efficient. Uh, you're having... Uh, navigation just restricted to daylight hours in certain segments of the river. So all of these things, when you put it all together, you're making a system that's less efficient, uh, less fluid. And, you know, farmers are the ones that actually pay the price of that because you'll, you'll see a, a widening basis or price that farmers receive is actually less than it normally would be just because the supply chain is less efficient. So, again, we this is... You know, we've got, you know, a lot of challenges confronting agriculture right now with, you know, trade turmoil with China and a host of other issues. Now, all of a sudden, there's this Mother Nature has imposed herself, and um, it's just making it all the more difficult. So, obviously, a real challenge confronting our industry. 
Well, you and I have been talking for some time. We've been talking about the need for improvements to our infrastructure system. Now, in many cases, we're talking about a total replacement because of of the damage being done with this disaster. Yeah, and and it's it's going to affect you know not only the the federal level but at the state level, and, and particularly I have a particular particular soft spot in my heart for the local level. Because you know, this is a, these are areas of the country that don't have an expanding tax base. You know, the cost of of maintaining and improving these assets, rural roads, bridges, um, many of them were built decades ago. Um, you know, the tax base is is less robust. You know, the costs of doing it has gone up. The age of some of these assets, you know, continues to uh, to go up. So. It, there's a lot of needs right now, and so it's going to be a real challenge. So obviously something that we're going to be monitoring for the foreseeable future. Hard to see a silver lining in this, but one might be, could this get the attention of Washington and, and get them moving on an infrastructure package? Yeah, I mean, nothing motivates like a catastrophe, and you never hope for a catastrophe, but you know, one of the things that we need to do is we need to make sure that we're positioning ourselves so that if all of a sudden there's renewed attention to our industry that we're able to say, hey, if you want to do something to help farmers, if you want to do something to help rural America on the area in the area of infrastructure, here's what you can actually do. And so that it really becomes incumbent upon us to be to be ready with that argument, uh, ready with that list of things that they can do that that to do list to really help our industry. Mike, what have you been hearing from folks uh, throughout the Midwest impacted by this flooding? Uh, I mean, these are historic situations that many are dealing with. What are some of the stories you've been hearing? Yeah, it, you know, certainly the, the ones that really are, are are really hard to hear that are really challenging are, you know, when you've got fields that have been flooded and, and you know, they can already declare that ground will not be planted this year. And... And it just kind of adds insult to injury because this is not – it's not like we're in a time of, of abundance right now in agriculture where everyone's making money hand over fist. And so there's already challenges. People were hopeful that 2019 would be better than 2018, and now all of a sudden you have this uh, being inserted upon our industry. Uh, but it – so there's – those are, are, are real, you know, hard testimonials to hear. But then even things that were – Normally, you would make a delivery to the the barge loading facility on the elevator. You normally might experience a slightly negative basis or a, maybe even a positive basis. Certain areas of agriculture experience that. But now, all of a sudden, your basis has decreased 20 cents or 25 cents. And, you know, we don't operate in a, in a – we operate in a very tight margin industry. And so anytime you have something like that occur – it just makes it all the more difficult for farmers to maintain their operations in the black, and it's just another challenge that farmers are having to overcome. Yeah, as you said, fields that uh, may not get planted this year at all, and we're seeing bins of grain surrounded by water. I mean, uh, worried about farmers worry about uh, the condition of that grain and how long it'll be before they can even get to it, and what's the damage going to be? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's just. And it just adds more and more expense, and and so it, it's just you know I, there's a lot of things uh, kind of weighing on the psychology 
of the industry right now, and and this is just certainly another one of them. And you know, I, farmers are the most among the most resilient of people on the planet. So again, they're they're used to this dance with Mother Nature that they do every year. Um, they're very well accustomed to it. But then, when you've got these challenges facing our industry, and then you have this you know very unique set of circumstances that produced this situation, and the fact that it's going to be persisting for the foreseeable future that's a real concern and obviously we'll be monitoring it and doing all we can to help for the foreseeable future all right mike thanks for being with us thank you mike mike steenhook executive director of the soy transportation coalition stay with us more to come here on aoa adams on agriculture Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, and a number of folks representing agriculture rang the bell for the opening of the New York Stock Exchange today. One of those in that group was Kurt Kavarik, Vice President of Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. He joins us now. Kurt, thanks for being with us. Uh, what was that experience like today? It was fantastic. Glad to be with you, Mike. It was a it was a great opportunity uh, for uh, USDA Secretary Sonny Perdue to tout the uh, agriculture industry as being a key economic driver for the nation and, and for the world, and to remind those in in the financial uh, industry here in New York City about the value of uh, agriculture, the ag economy, and uh, what what it does for the economy. So it was it was a really outstanding experience, and he did a great job. Well, Kurt, uh, more waivers to the RFS being granted, these small refinery exemptions being granted by EPA. Uh, yesterday we talked with Bob Deneen with the Renewable Fuels Association. It's certainly impacting the ethanol industry, but as we've said before, it's probably impacting the biodiesel industry even more. What's your reaction to EPA continuing to grant these waivers? Well, we're terribly disappointed. Uh, we're extremely frustrated with this EPA. Uh, we're extremely frustrated with this administration, and it's it's somewhat ironic that I was with Sonny Perdue this morning when he was talking about the growth of the ag- agriculture economy in providing food and fuel for the nation and the world, and I know that he is, and I know that he believes that, and I know he's a, a strong champion, uh, but it's just that much more frustrating that EPA continues the path of the previous administrator, Mr. Pruitt, 
in granting essentially all of the small refinery waiver requests that have come in to EPA. Last week, they granted five more for calendar year compliance year 2017. Uh, that brings the total for, for us in terms of lost gallons for that year up to $240 million, which is about 12% of what our RVO, our renewable volume obligation, was for that year. And the, the unfortunate thing about this is, is because they're being granted now for compliance year 2017, those refineries uh, no longer have an obligation to blend the fuel this year. So it, it's a it's a real-world impact. It's lost gallons. And unfortunately, you know, we're not seeing any end to this trend at EPA. And when you hear about refineries as large as ExxonMobil or Endeavor, you know, multi-billion dollar uh, entities that are extraordinarily profitable receiving these hardship waivers, it, it's hard to fathom what kind of metric they're using to determine uh the, these these considerations. So, you know, there are 39 waivers pending for 2018. Uh, we hear a, a lot of rumors in, in Washington right now that EPA is on the cusp of uh, making decisions on those waivers, and that will be the real test for this new administrator, Mr. Wheeler, who has pledged to be more fair and more transparent uh, during this process. You know, the fact of the matter is, when, when we have coupled uncertainty on policies on, on Capitol Hill with the, with the biodiesel tax credit, with the undermining of the RVOs from EPA at a time when, you know, soybean growers are facing enormous headwinds from uh, trade re- uh, retaliatory uh, tariffs. It, 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 you just question whether the message is, getting, is rising up to the top level of this administration about what they're doing to undermine both the biofuels industry and, by extension, the soybean grower. It's just hard to understand. Yeah, there seems to be a real disconnect between what we're hearing in public appearances and comments from the president about his support for biofuels and then the actions of his EPA. And then you have Senator Cruz uh, talking about you know, publicly talking about how he he won uh, these uh, uh, you know commitments from EPA to to grant these waivers. Well, and we, we raise that with our with our, our great champions uh, in the Senate, particularly from Iowa, that he made those comments. Uh, Senator Cruz made those comments. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard to imagine that the this EPA administrator would make those commitments seemingly on a very political nature when these waiver requests are supposed to be very rigorous. Uh, review and, and data collection by the Department of Energy and then a recommendation to EPA to suggest from a United States senator that these were made, that these refinery exemptions were granted based on a political uh, leverage or, or pressure is really outrageous. And I, I would hope that, you know, all of our, our champions, particularly from agriculture states, will press Administrator Wheeler. I know we will. Uh, in getting to the bottom of this to find out are these are the decisions to grant these waivers and undermine the renewable fuel standard being made on economic factors of financial hardship for refineries or is it is it being done because of pressure from one senator from Texas uh, who's trying to protect his oil industry from losing market share and one other topic quick question Kurt you hearing anything on the, the tax extenders package well we had a we had a, a, a very positive hearing in a subcommittee of the House Ways and Means Committee just last week where they reviewed temporary tax policies. It didn't uh, focus 
specifically on the biodiesel tax credit or what we call the, the, the extenders package that, that currently exists. Uh, but it was brought up um, uh, almost a half dozen times by our advocates to express the urgency and their, their desire and support to get extenders moving. And I think what we heard from both the chairman of that subcommittee and the chairman of the full committee is that they want to process a tax bill here in the near, near term, hopefully by uh, April 15th, tax filing day. So the next three weeks of uh, session, their House and Senate are, are in uh, recess this week, but we would anticipate real progress uh, during that next three-week session leading up to April 15th. And quite frankly, you know, we're, we're past 14 months now with the tax credit having been lapsed, the longest it's ever gone. We're hearing a lot of stories from producers across the country about how this is harming them economically, how they're re- pulling back on feedstock purchases, which ultimately affects the soybean uh, farmer and the value of the soybean oil, um, and, and blending less fuel. So all of that is bad for, for the biodiesel industry and the, and the American farmer. So we're hopeful right. we see progress next week. Okay, Kurt, thanks. Hopefully we'll see that progress indeed. Thanks for the update, Kurt. Thank you, sir. Glad to be with you. Kurt Kavarik. Vice President, Federal Affairs for the National Biodiesel Board. Thanks for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.